What we'd like to do is talk about, uh, we didn't want to put this in the, uh, in the advertising, but we want to talk about the theology of change and how it affects us, how it affects our people, how it affects winning the loss. And uh, you're going to need your Bibles. I hope you brought a Bible with you. Um, because we want to go through the Word and find out what in the world is going on and how we can handle it. You'll excuse me for sitting down, but you're doing it, so there's no reason why I shouldn't. And half of what I was born with doesn't work anymore, and the other half hurts. So I'm going to sit down if you don't mind. The, the history of progress in this world is the sad story of the conflict between open doors and closed minds. And this is especially true of the church. If you take science, just read the history of science, and notice how minds were closed against the truth. Uh, they told the Wright brothers they were crazy because you couldn't fly a heavier than air machine. Guess what? They did it. They told uh, Lister and Pasteur that their ideas about germs were crazy. Turned out that they were right. Now this came from the scientific world, not from the lay world. Uh, Galileo tells us that the earth is not the center of the, our universe, the sun is. And uh, the church didn't want to accept it, and science, so-called, did not want to accept it. This conflict is true in the area of communications. Now you all know we've gone from an oral society to a writing society to a printing society to a transmitting society. Radio, television, movies, uh, and all the other equipment that we have. And all along it was a battle. Uh, you will not believe this, but I speak the truth. When they were moving from an oral society to a written society, people were saying, this will destroy people's memories. If they can write things down, why remember? Well, we write things down now so we can remember, I suppose. I see people with Palm Pilots in one hand and uh, cellular phones in the other hand right, running down the halls of airports We've gone a long way. Uh, when people used to sit and write books, the monks in the monasteries would sit and write books, and when printing came along, you won't believe this, but people said printing will never replace handwritten books. People want the best. And today, if you have a handwritten book, you've got a treasure, but you can't use it very much. So printing, replaced handwritten manuscripts, and then printing was challenged by radio. Uh, I lived through, I have lived through the, the great days of radio. Uh, I was a depression baby. My mother was depressed for months after she saw me. <laughs> um, and I remember those great days of radio. And they said, you know, radio is gonna put the printing press out of business. If you have you ever tried to find a parking place at a Barnes and Noble store? We have two of them in Lincoln, Nebraska. Those parking lots are full. So printing uh, was not replaced by radio. And then movies came along. They said, well, there'd be no more radio because now we have movies. We have sound movies. But radio's still here making noise. Television came along and said, that's the end of movies. Movies are still here. Television's still here. Uh, computer came along. I remember seeing an article in some magazine, I don't know, Forbes or something, years ago, 
that said we are soon going to have paper-free offices. How many of you have computers? May I see your hand? How many of you have paper-free offices? <laughs> so you see, all down the pike, it's been the same story. The experts tell us this is what's going to happen, and lo and behold, it doesn't happen. This is true in, um, in government, especially true. There are three ways to do things, the right way, the wrong way, and the government way. And um, in the early days of, of the American uh, Republic, I happened to run across, um, here it is, a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote about the Constitution. Now here's the man who's the father of the Declaration of Independence who is the father of the uh, Bill of Rights. And here's what he had to say. If you have problems with people in your church with constitutions, many churches do, you know, they don't carry a Bible, they carry a constitution. Uh, show them this, let me read it to you. Uh, Jefferson was writing to a friend of his who asked some questions about the revision of the, of the Virginia Constitution. Some men look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant too sacred to be touched. They ascribe to the men of the preceding age a wisdom more than human and suppose what they did to be beyond amendment. Now he was among those men. It was very like the present, but without the experience of the present, and 40 years of experience in government is worth a century of book reading. I am certainly not an advocate for the frequent and untried changes in laws and constitution. I think moderate imperfections had better be born with, because when once known, we accommodate ourselves to them and find practical means of correcting their ill effects. But I know also that laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. Now that, that's a great statement. It ought to be printed and put up above the baptistry. <laughs> he goes on to say this, institutions must advance also and keep pace with the times. So the government's had the same problem that, that the church has, has, has often faced, this business of we have to make some changes and, oh, you can't do it. When William Carey appealed for missionaries to go win a lost world, a saintly man stood up and said, young man, sit down. When God wants to win the heathen, he'll do it without your help. And I would have read to him from Romans, how shall they hear without a preacher? God does need our help. Uh, I've had people stop me and say, now look, you're talking about change. What are you gonna do with Malachi 3.6? I am the Lord, I change not. Well, I don't advocate anybody try to change the Lord. And I know the Lord doesn't change, but the Lord changes his ways of working. Otherwise, you haven't read your Bible if you don't believe that. Or they come, they say, what about Jeremiah, chapter 6, verse 16? Seek for the old paths. How old? And back in Jeremiah's day, they had left the old paths. So this morning and this afternoon, when we talk about change, we're not talking about undermining either the character of God or the word of God, or the basic foundations of Christian living in the church. No, those things never change. We bake our bread differently today. You got a bread machine, you know, you dump it all in there and plug it in and go play golf. Uh, but it's still bread. The fundamentals really don't change. I wish that we would all get back to the slogan we had in Youth for Christ centuries ago. I was there at the beginning. I remember the whole story. And our slogan in Youth for Christ 55 years ago was, geared to the times, anchored to the rock. And I recommend that for every church. 
Now, if you're anchored to the rock but not geared to the times, you're not accomplishing anything. And if all you are is geared to the times, you've abandoned your, your, your ministry. So the progress has always had to fight against closed minds when God gives open doors. Now, why does change create so much trouble? Why is it in churches today uh, you make any kind of change, and particularly in the area of worship, and people leave? Well, part of the problem is my fault, maybe your fault. We don't teach our people the biblical approach to change. And we ourselves don't take the biblical approach to change. We approach change cosmetically, but not theologically. I once preached for a friend of mine in Oklahoma. He said, now we have two services. First service is traditional. Second service is contemporary. I said, what's the difference? Well, I said, in between services, I change clothes. I put on blue jeans and a sweatshirt. That's change. No, it's not. That's just a cosmetic change. Same message. If you're going to preach to a contemporary crowd, and it's the same matches you used for the older crowd, they may not have understood it. Unless your preaching is so good, anybody can understand it, which I think it probably is. But just changing your shirt and your trousers doesn't make it a different thing altogether. Change creates trouble for us because we don't approach it, approach it biblically. We don't teach our people what God says about change, because this book is change from start to finish. And when we understand how God does it, you know what it does for you, man? It just takes away that fear, takes away that tension. When you're talking to somebody about how to be saved, you know, you know what you're talking about because you've got a book that tells you. This is how you're saved. You talk to somebody about a church problem, here's what the Word of God says. Talk to somebody about change, you've got the Word of God behind you. That's what we're going to try to do today. There's a third reason why change causes so much trouble. Not only because we don't approach it biblically, and we don't teach people God's way of change, but we ourselves are not growing, and therefore we are resisting change. Let me tell you what my wife and I have been doing. We're not out on the road very much, and we're getting more involved in our local church. Used to be, well, they gave me, some years ago, the church that we are members of gave me a little tag like the staff wears. A lot of you people have staff tags. And it said, Warren wears the occasional attender. <laughs> uh, and I was, because I was out on the road with Back to the Bible and so forth, but now we're home more. We're getting involved with our college students. And uh, I have breakfast with them. Of course, they let me pay, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> I have breakfast with some of them. We talk about things. And um, I've noticed that they help me catch up on the present. And I help them catch up on the past. Because it takes both to be balanced. And they'll call me up and say, I'm looking, who is this man Spurgeon? Well, he was a great British preacher. Are his books available? Every sermon? Yeah, 65 volumes, you want them? You can buy them. Who, who was this fellow, George Morrison? Or who was, who was Henry Martin? See, nobody educates them. And so I'm helping them catch up on the past, and they're helping me catch up on the present. And I want to grow myself. I don't want to be an old curmudgeon who has a, a knee-jerk reaction against anything new. I want to think it through. I want to see what the Word says. If the Word doesn't authorize it, I'm not, I don't care how popular it is, I'm not interested. 
I've been in some services in some places where I felt, as we were singing, I felt like turning to my wife and saying, patty cake, patty cake, baker, <laughs> it was so absolutely juvenile and shallow because uh, just because there's a crowd there doesn't mean a thing. I, I can get, there's a big difference between building a crowd and building a church. Now it's nice to have a crowd. Um, the, Spurgeon used to say, those who criticize statistics usually have none to report. <laughs> and he may, he may have been right. But I find personally, I have to deal with this whole matter of change. You and I are living and ministering at a time in history when the ages are colliding. The ages are colliding. And the new has not yet been born and the old has not yet been buried. And it's a difficult time to serve. I can recall the 50s. Some of you were here, some of you weren't. The 50s were very quiet, very sleepy. Uh, Eisenhower was in the White House uh, when he wasn't playing golf. And uh, uh, it was just a quiet time. Then along came the 60s and everything exploded. Then along came the 70s when he started to calm down just a little bit. And then we had wars. Uh, Pastor uh, Michael has recommended some books to you. Let me recommend occasionally some secular books to you. If you're not acquainted with Eric Hoffer, H-O-F-F-E-R, Get acquainted with him. He was not a professor, thank God for that. He was not a, any kind of a, an erudite specialist. He was a longshoreman in San Francisco. He loaded cargo on ships. But by night, he read omnivorously, read, thought. And he's written some marvelous books. The Ordeal of Change is one of them. Uh, the True Believer is another. He'll make you think. Let me read a quotation from The Ordeal of Change. I'm sorry, my first quotation is from his book, First Things, Last Things. Now listen closely. The vanishing of the present is hard on grown-ups. It devalues their experience, skills, and convictions and reduces them to the level of adolescence. The young become arrogant in an age of not knowing. When the old are no longer sure of themselves and growing up becomes meaningless. From the ordeal of change, every radical adjustment is a crisis in self-esteem. We undergo a test we have to prove ourselves. And of course, this leads to fear and anger. In times of change, learners inherit the earth. While the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. Now, some of you are too young to worry about this. Some of us who are older have faced this. I've been through this where you stand before a seminary class. Here are people 25, 26 years old, and you're struggling to figure out how to turn on your computer. And they have known from the cradle how that thing not only turns on, but how it works. And when I see my youngest grandson running these things, it makes me feel like a, uh, an idiot. So we're living in a world where the younger have got hold of the means of communication. And some of us older folks are wondering, how do you run those things? What do you do next? Uh, when I graduated from seminary in the early 50s, counseling had not really hit the church yet. It was coming. We could see it coming. It started about in the 20s. But the liberal people grabbed it first. Evangelicals didn't want it. And we had one 
course in counseling. It, it lasted maybe two weeks in seminary. And then, whop, you're suddenly hit with all of this. I had to do a lot of, a lot of uh, studying. I had to pick up books. What is this all about? Now you go to seminary and you get some basic courses in counseling. You can even get a degree in it if you want to. And this is true of so many other areas. You and I have to be very careful as we face this matter of change that we ourselves are not growing. I'm sure you heard about the preacher who said he had 20 years experience in the ministry when actually he had two years experience 10 times. <laughs> he was not growing. I read more secular books now than I read sacred books, except for the Bible, because I want to find out what this world is saying about things. Not that I want the wisdom of this world, but everything I read just goes right through the grid of this book. And sometimes they hit the nail on the head, and sometimes they don't even know where the nail is. Change is causing trouble because sometimes those of us who are in leadership are not growing as we should. And sometimes we settle for substitutes. There's a difference between change and novelty. Change for the sake of change is novelty. Changing my shirt, putting on blue jeans. Change for the sake of progress is true change. And this is going to sound strange to you, but that's all right. Think about it. We have to plan change. If we just let change work, it's not going to be change. It's going to be chaos. We have to plan change. There's an old Roman proverb that says, and if the pilot does not know what port he's heading for, no wind is the right wind. If the pastor does not know where, he wants the, where God wants the church to go, how he wants the church to go there, what changes need to be made, uh, it's, there's going to be civil war. And as my friend E.K. Bailey says, the only thing that's going to change is your address. So I hope that by the time we're through today, you'll understand something about planning change. Uh, at this stage in life, I have to say things when I think of them because whew, they're gone sometimes. <laughs> You're not like that. You will be. <laughs> you will be. Um, now, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. <laughs> we're making a big mistake in our churches, alienating the older people from the younger people. I'm going to repeat that. It's a declaration of war. We're making a big mistake in our churches by alienating the older people from the younger people. I said that my wife and I are working with the college kids in the church. We have between six and 700 of them. They have their own worship service. Um, it's wonderful. I just love to go worship with them. One Sunday, one of the elders of the church, who was at that time, I think, 90, 91 years old, they asked him to come and speak to them on how he learned how to give. And so Ernest went, he sat on a stool, and just told in about six, seven minutes how God taught him and his wife Annie how to give. You know what those young people did when he was through? They gave him a standing ovation. Now I go and speak to him. I, I'm going to be 74 in a couple of weeks. And, um, um, but they respect age. Now, there was a time when young people did not respect age. Today, we have a generation that respects age and maturity. It's like the crowd we had back in the 50s that produced Jim Elliott and people like that. We have a remarkable crowd of younger people today who say, can you help me? But we separate the older people from the young people, and you shouldn't do that. When I was at the Moody Church, 
every once in a while we would take one of the adult classes, some of the Canaanites, you know, the adult classes. <laughs> and uh, after church, after morning service, they'd have dinner with the younger class. The older class, the younger class, with the kids and everything else. They loved it. They lo Before long, a young bride would be saying to an older person, well, now how do you do this? But isn't that biblical? See, Paul wrote that to Timothy and to Titus. He said, now, he said, Timothy, you're a young man. Okay, you treat the young men like brothers. You treat the younger women like sisters. The older men like fathers and the older women like mothers. It's a family. And I want you to know, folks, it works. When, I, when Betty and I walk into college worship hour, nobody says, boy, here comes a couple of old codgers, man alive. I bet his social security number's in Roman numerals. Man. <laughs> they don't say that. And they ask us questions about life and about the Bible and about prayer. Oh, it's wonderful. And then we ask them, now what about this? What? And we're finding ourselves thinking younger. I wish I felt younger, but thinking younger and understanding them better and we're building bridges. Now you can do this in your church. Nothing's stopping you from getting the younger and the older together because uh, the church is a family. Now all I want to do today, by the way, all of this was preparatory. Aren't you glad that's over with now? <laughs> what I want to do today is just present three affirmations. Here they are, they're very simple. Affirmation number one, our God is a God of change. Our God doesn't change. No, no. Our God is a God of change. Secondly, God's church is perfectly equipped for change. Our God is a God of change. God's church is perfectly equipped for change. And the third affirmation is every pastor and leader can be a change agent. Uh, as uh, some of you know, I'm addicted to books. I'm addicted to bookstores. Uh, I have friends who can find sports shops with their eyes closed. I, I don't, I've never seen a sports shop because I'm not a sports person. I played left drawback in the high school football team. <laughs> but I can find bookstores. And I go into bookstores, not always to buy books. I want to see what's coming out. I want to see what people are reading. And uh, I'm noticing that little by little, younger people are learning from the older people. Older people are learning from the, young, from the younger people. You can see it in some of the books that are coming out. Okay, affirmation number one, our God is a God of change. Now, it's a delight to talk to pastors because I know you know your Bibles and I don't have to explain everything to you. When I mention it, you'll say, yeah, I know that. Our God is a God of change. Start in Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless, dark, and empty. That's a great way to start. Sounds like the average church. <laughs> Formless, dark, and empty. God did not speak and everything happened. How many of you have read J.B. Phillips' book, Your God is Too Small? You ought to read that book. It's a good book. Uh, the new president out at Fuller Seminary says somebody should write a book called Your God is Too Fast. Now think that through. I think Dr. Mao has made a good point. Why is it that whatever we do, it has to be done at the speed of light? God doesn't work that way. Our God is never late. But here he has this chaos, and the Spirit of God brooded over the face of the waters. 
The Spirit of God and the Word of God work together to bring order out of chaos, but not all at once. Day one, day two, day three. We wouldn't have done it that way. But that's the way he did it. Now, notice God's sequence. He formed, then he filled, then he blessed. He formed the land, he filled it, he blessed it. He formed the seas, he filled it, he blessed it. He formed the heavens, he filled it, he blessed it. He formed man and woman, put them in the garden where they'd always have what they needed, and he blessed them. That's the way God works. I recall the uh, first church I pastored. You learned so much in your first church. They were dear people, they were good to me. They were, they were so tolerant of me. Um, but I was talking to our deacons, I said, you know, I think we ought to have an evangelistic meeting. Bring somebody in, and we've got a lot of people that come that, I don't know if they're saved or not. You talk to them, oh yeah, pastor, I'm saved. Uh, and one of the deacons spoke up, bless his heart, he said, all right, suppose we bring a man in and we got 25, 30 people say, what are we gonna do with him? Are we equipped to raise these babies? I said, thank you. You see, before God blesses, he fills, but before he fills, he forms. I said, we're gonna have to start working now on training people to lead people to Christ and help them grow. We're gonna find some literature. So we did, we formed, then God filled, man came in to preach. I think I baptized 30-some people from that one week of meetings. But we were prepared for something to happen. That's the way God works. Uh, some of us, I have a friend who thinks he has to win the whole world all by himself. And he's never home. Uh, that's not the way God works. God says, now look, let's take a week to do this. In creation, God shows to us that he is a God who takes his time. He forms, he fills, he blesses. Uh, when you look at his dealings with Israel, uh, it's incredible. When you read the Old Testament, you say, come on, get with it. Get with it. God, what are you waiting for? Taking his time, just takes his time. Uh, he told Sarah, he said, kings are going to come out from you. First time a king is mentioned with reference to Israel. Then in Deuteronomy, Moses said, now when you have a king, <laughs> then along comes Samuel, and they said, we want a king. And God already picked out David, but he said, okay, you want a king now. Right now, you've got to have a king. I'll give you one. I'll give you one you'll never forget. They gave him Saul to spank him. I find that when I'm in a hurry to tell God what he has to do, I don't get the best. But when I wait for the right place and the right time and for God to work, then he works. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 48 has a fascinating text in it. I'm not going to preach, don't, don't, and we're not going to take an offering, but Jeremiah 48, 11. God is speaking through the prophet about Moab. Have you met any Moabites lately? <laughs> I, have, I, have, I haven't seen a Moabite in years. <laughs> Moab is mentioned in chapter 48 because God was going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Verse 11. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has been undisturbed like wine on its dregs. See, the Moabites lived up in the mountains and they had this protection. And they could do what they wanted to do and nobody's gonna bother them. Notice the image he uses here. And he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed. You see, when they make wine, they'll let it ferment and then they empty it into another vessel here is a perfect picture of many churches. Safe, secure, 
carrying on as they've always carried on, but no changes. They've, they've never been emptied from vessel to vessel, and so they have the same flavor and the same smell, but it's not as rich as it could be. Now, contrast the people of Israel. God, God put the people of Israel at the most vulnerable crossroads geographically they could be. If Egypt wanted to invade somebody, they come stomping across Israel. If the Assyrians wanted to come or the Babylonians wanted to come, here's Israel, vulnerable. Which nation has produced more good for this world, Moab or Israel? Well, you know the answer. Israel. My Bible is a Jewish book. And Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. And by the way, if you weren't saved by a Jew, you aren't saved. Now churches are this way. I, I've, I've preached in hundreds of churches or in lots of places. And some churches are just like Moab. Safe, comfortable. But God never meant the church to be comfortable and safe. He meant us to be vulnerable and daring. And I don't want to be like Moab. At this age stage in life, I could be. I said, look, don't bother me. I'm just going to sit here and, and uh, I'm going to ferment. <laughs> no, you're not. I tell you, one of the best things for me is change. Keeps me from being a stodgy, critical old curmudgeon. And this is true of churches. So the nation of Israel, constant change. Oh, my, my. But out of it, look what came. The ministry of Jesus. Let's just talk about change in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, born as a baby, grew up, at the age of 30 began his ministry. Now, when he began his ministry, there were five groups that he had to contend with. One of them is not mentioned in the Bible, but the influence is probably in the, in the New Testament. Number one, you had the Pharisees. And the theology of the Pharisees is, let's go back. Let's go back. Don't, don't change anything. Let's just go back to Moses. By the way, we have this philosophy today. Uh, there are those who say, let's go back to the days of Moody and Sankey. The days of Moody and Sankey were so challenging to the church, they didn't know what to do. They didn't like Sankey's organ. They didn't like Moody's grammar. Moody saying, God done it! <laughs> he never went past sixth grade. And uh, all he had, he gave to God, and God used it. Uh, how far back should we go? Moody Sankey. Uh, my friend Martin Lloyd-Jones said we must go back to the days of the Puritans. Man, if you preach like the Puritans, you're going to talk to yourself. <laughs> I've got their books. I mean, I've got, I've, got, I've got a book on Hebrews written by one of these guys. I tell you, I don't know what he's talking about. Now, I know there's great treasure in there. But I don't want to go back to the days of the period. They had five hours to listen to a sermon. Somebody else said, notice, go back to the church of the 11th century. That's where it was really true. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. When Billy Graham first went to Britain, he was criticized by the press. They said he's going to set the church back 100 years. He said, I'm sorry about that. I, if I do that, I've failed. I came here to set the church back 2,000 years, and he was right. Let's go back to Pentecost. Now, when Jesus came, he had the Pharisees. They said, let's go back. You had the Sadducees who said, let's go ahead. They were the liberals of their day. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and they didn't believe in the inspiration of anything beside the Pentateuch. And uh, they said, let's, let's go ahead, let's be very liberal. And then our Lord had the Herodians who said, let's go with. Cooperate with Rome, cooperate with Herod. Don't, don't, don't be a nuisance, just, just learn to cooperate. 
And then you had the zealots. One of our Lord's disciples was a zealot. They said, boy, let's go against. Kill every Roman you can find. Stop every politician you can. Let's just go against. Now we have these same groups today. The fifth group were the Essenes. The Essenes, as you know, said, let's go out. Let's just get out of here. Jeremiah said one day, oh, I wish I had a motel room out there in the wilderness where I could get away from this bunch. <coughs> now you felt the same way. So here are the five groups that Jesus had to contend with. The Essenes were not there pre in presence, but the attitude of let's go out, let's just get out of here, was certainly prevalent in his day. Now Jesus believed in going back to the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus believed in going ahead, taking those scriptures and moving on. Uh, Jesus believed in going with in the sense of if you don't contact people, how are you ever going to win them? And Jesus believed in going against that which was evil, but not in a murderous sense. Our Lord was crucified by the religious leaders partly because he advocated change. Uh, open your Bible to, uh, please, to John, the Gospel of John. Now, I know what you preach the Gospel of John. You know the Gospel of John, but bear with me. John, in his Gospel, starts off as though he was write, writing Genesis. Genesis starts in the beginning, God. John begins, in the beginning was the Word. And interestingly enough, in the first chapter and the second chapter, you find seven days, just like you do in Genesis. And there was the first day, and there was the second day. You notice in verse 19, John the Baptist is giving his testimony to a committee that came down and said, who are you? That's day one. Look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God. That's day two. Verse 35, again the next day. There's day three. John was standing. That's when he lost his disciples. They went to follow uh, Jesus. Verse 43, the next day. Now we're on day four. And uh, Nathaniel and Philip get in on the picture. And then chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, that is the third day after that fourth day, so you're on the seventh day. So John, led by the Holy Spirit, deliberately says, hey, read my book like you would read Genesis, because in Genesis, God is bringing new things. So he starts with a week not of creation, but of new creation. So let's just turn the pages of the Gospel of John and see the new things that were introduced to Israel by Jesus, and they fought him. Chapter 1, verse 29, a new sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every single morning, every single evening, a lamb was sacrificed at the temple. On the Sabbath day, four lambs were sacrificed. Here's a new sacrifice. Chapter 2, verses 19 to 21, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. A new temple. By the way, have you noticed in the Gospel of John that every time Jesus talked about something spiritual, they interpreted it as something literal? Have you noticed that? Here's a case. Destroy this temple. In three days I'll raise it up. How can he do that? It took us all these years to build a temple. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can I get back in my mother's womb? As you go through the Gospel of John, you find people could not understand him. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness couldn't comprehend it. So we have a new temple in chapter 2 of John. Uh, verses 19 to 21. Chapter 3, a new birth. 
the Jews were proud of their birth, and rightly so, rightly so. He said, I got a new birth. Chapter 3. Chapter 4, and this is a real zinger, a new worship. The woman said to him, I see you're a prophet. Let's discuss religion. Uh, you people say we should worship in Jerusalem, and we want to worship here in Mount Gerizim. Woman, believe me, says verse 21, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. That takes care of all religions apart from Judaism. I don't care who founded them. I don't care how much property they've got. I don't care how many people follow. They worship what they don't know. Uh, for salvation is from the Jews. We worship what we know. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Here's a new worship. You don't need a temple. You don't need a, a sacrifice. You don't need an altar. That's radical. So there's a new birth, a new worship. Chapter 5, a new Sabbath. He deliberately healed a man on the Sabbath day. Now, this man had been sick a long, long time. Verse 5, 38 years. If a guy is sick for 38 years, why heal him on the Sabbath? He can wait one more day. Our Lord deliberately, twice in the Gospel of John, healed on the Sabbath day to say to the religious leaders, I'm coming with a new Sabbath, a new rest. Chapter 6, a new manna. The Jews knew all about the manna. He said, I'm that bread. Chapter 7, a new water. Whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. Out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Chapter 8, a new light. The Jews knew all about light, a light a fire, a pillar of fire guided them through the wilderness. He says, I'm the light of the world, not just the light of the Jews. Chapter 10, a new flock. There's going to be one flock and one shepherd, 1016. Chapter 13, a new commandment that covers all the commandments. Love one another. Paul picked that up in Romans 13. Love encompasses the whole law. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to lie about him or steal from him. Chapter 15, a new vine. In the Old Testament, Israel was the vine. But now Jesus says, I am the true vine, and you're the branches. Jesus said in chapter 18 to uh, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Here's a new kingdom. Now, the Gospel of John is saying to the religious leaders, everything's new, it's new, it's new. But it comes out of the old. If you want a key text to guide you in this whole thing, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 51. Have you understood all these things? Now, that means the seven parables of Matthew 13. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Isn't that terrific? Man, I've been studying Matthew 13 for years. I, I don't understand all those things. They said, yes. He said to them, therefore, every scribe, now that's the student, who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. You don't just study, but you do. So we are scribes who study the truth. We are disciples who obey the truth. Is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. So if somebody says to you, Pastor, yeah, well, why did... You, you, re, you, you changed the order of the service, yes. We've been talking about this with the leaders and praying about it. Yeah, yeah but we've been doing this this way for all these years. Uh, 
By the way, right in the margin someplace, this little truth, the more predictable a service and a sermon are, the less powerful they are. If people can predict what's going to happen next, they're not going to have to pay attention. I recall at Moody Church that for years they'd open the service with a doxology, which was fine. But I, I didn't like, you know, people were coming in from Sunday school class, it was a big building, and people were looking for parking places. And so here we are singing praise to God and people walking around. It just didn't seem right to me. So Minister of Music and I talked with the elders. We thought, let's open the service not with a doxology or not with a hymn. Let's open the service with a fanfare. Let's do like they did back in, in the, the, the Book of Psalms with the trumpets and, 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 and just praising God with the trumpets. And we had some great brass people. So we did that. The you know, service was about to begin. Everybody was waiting to get up and sing the doxology, and these five men walk up, you know. And oh, it was marvelous. It was marvelous. Until after the service. <laughs> <laughs> and the Canaanites came up. <laughs> I thought one lady was going to hit me. She said, We don't do it that way here. I said, well, it says in the scriptures, praise the Lord with the symbols. We haven't done that yet. <laughs> we may, you know. Well, she laughed and went away. Predictability robs us of power. That's true in preaching. This is why I never put an outline of my message in the bulletin. It might be available after the service or next week. I don't want them sitting following. I want to catch them by surprise. So the Lord says to us, now look, not just new. That, that's the mistake the younger people are making. They think nothing happened. They think nothing happened before 1980. And they're dead wrong. I was saved in Youth for Christ, had my first experience in service in Youth for Christ. Every once in a while I get a phone call from a stranger who is a, a youth pastor. Let's say, Brother Wiersbe, uh, I've got an idea here. I know you've been around a long time, and I'm wondering if this idea will work. And he tells me what his idea. I said, it will work, it will work, it will work. He said, how do you know? I said, because we did it in Youth for Christ 50 years ago. Those who do not know the past are condemned to repeat it, said George Santiana, and he's right. Now, if you have the attitude that nothing good ever happened before 1980, get rid of that. A lot of good things happen. But if you've got the attitude that nothing good has happened since 1980, get rid of that attitude too. Because we're supposed to bring out of the treasury of our lives things new and things old. A deacon said to me one day uh, in a church pastored by a dear, dear friend of mine, he said, if our pastor teaches the book of Revelation one more time, I'm leaving. Now, you can teach Revelation over and over again if you want to, if you find something new. And remind them of something old. Don't be afraid to repeat. People need it. How many, how many times have you said to your children, how many times must I tell you this? We have to repeat. People learn. How do advertisers sell their products? They drive you nuts repeating. Paul said, to say the same thing to you may be grievous for you, but it's good for you. So Jesus, in his ministry, brought out things new from things old. That's the beauty of the way God has built even creation. We're watching up in, over in Nebraska, where we don't, we're, too, we're a very poor state, we can't afford weather. Um, <laughs> but we're watching the trees that have been sitting there now for all these months, dead, dead. Even the squirrels didn't like them, just dead. Now you know what's happening? Out of that death, that old is coming the new. 
Same thing's through the ground. I don't pay attention to the garden. That's my wife's business. But here's these dead old things, and it's all coming out now. Now, God made it that way. Church is that way. You could, you could take a church, and it looks so dead. Man, life just looks so dead. But you start preaching that living word and exalting the living Christ and trusting the Holy Spirit of life. And out of that old comes something new. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And that's what our job is. Uh, let me get started on the book of Acts. And then we'll take a little break. And uh, pastor has some things he wants to say to us. Uh, the first chapter of the book of Acts, which you know, is a picture of a typical church. They're behind closed doors. They aren't touching anybody outside. They're holding elections. <laughs> They're studying the word. They're having a prayer meeting. But nothing's happening outside. Then the Holy Spirit comes. And the church of the closed door becomes the church of the open door. And they go out public and they preach Jesus, and 3,000 people are saved. Now, from that point on, you're going to see this conflict between open doors and closed minds. It happened even at Pentecost. Yeah, oh, these men are drunk. They're full of new wine. By the way, they wouldn't accuse most churches today of being drunk. Full of new wine, embalming fluid maybe, but not, not, uh, not wine. The thing that drew the crowd was the sound of a rushing wind. Take the images of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. You've got wine, you've got fire, you've got wind. What happens when wind and fire get together? A blaze starts to move. Campbell Morgan said that he thinks, at that day when he said it, he thinks that the best image of the church is not really the cross, although we don't want to deny that. It's the tongue of fire. God put us down here to ignite something. So the door is opened in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people are saved. Then another 2,000 are saved. They're up to 5,000. Imagine being a member of a church of 120 people. That's Acts 1. And all of a sudden you have 5,000 new ones that can outvote you. Mm. Didn't make any difference. Didn't make any difference at all. Chapter 6 of the book of Acts, they start having some problems. If your church is not having problems, you're not growing. If you just re keep rehashing the same old problems, <coughs> shouldn't be that way. Acts chapter 6, somebody, well, notice the mathematics of chapter 6, then we'll quit. The number of the disciples was increasing. That's multiplication. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. Now that's division. Often, multiplication creates problems. If the church is growing, if people are coming in, if souls are being saved, you've got to make adjustment for them. There's not enough room, or there's this or there's that. Need some more teachers, this or that. So you have multiplication leads to division, but division led to subtraction. The apostles said, you know what? We shouldn't be doing these things. We shouldn't be waiting on tables. It's not a demeaning act, but that's not our job. So multiplication led to division. Division led to subtraction. I recommend, brethren, once a year, sit down with a piece, piece of paper, make a list of all the things you do. Everything you do <coughs> that relates to ministry. And then go down that list and check the things somebody else can do better and let them do it. Let them do it. Now, if you've got a messianic complex and you have to do everything, don't stay in the ministry. You'll die young. If you're a micromanager, don't, don't, don't find something else. God never called me to do everything. I preach the word, I study the word, I counsel with people. 
try to win souls and train other people to do it because they can do it better than I can. So you have multiplication leads to division, division leads to subtraction. Let's get rid of some of the things we're doing. And subtraction led to further multiplication. They add, to addition, they added seven deacons. We think they were deacons. So that's the mathematics of ministry. <clears throat> you're preaching the gospel, you're winning souls, there's multiplication. You're gonna have problems, division. Somebody's gonna gripe about something. Look at the ministry and say, what can we change? And give up some of the things maybe you're doing. Let somebody else do it. And then add other people to do it. You know, it's a great thing. If I had my ministry to do over, I would spend more time doing what I'm doing now, mentoring people. I sit down with, with, with these young folks who want to go into ministry and we talk about Bible study, we talk about prayer. I wish at Moody Church I had poured myself into more young people than I did. And I recommend that to you. Just say, God, give me three or four people I can just pour my life into. Uh, and, and give some of your jobs to somebody else. Don't force it on them. Pray that they'll enjoy doing it. So here we have a closed door. God opens it. Closed door. God opens it. It's time for me to stop. Pastor, you've got some things you want to say. We'll pick this up when we pick it up again. Thank you, Dr. Wilson.